regular listeners to the Twilight Zone podcast will recall that we've covered two episodes of the Twilight Zone by a writer named Charles Beaumont. We've spoken about Perchance to Dream and Elegy. Now, Charles Beaumont's contributions to the Twilight Zone were considerable. He wrote 22 episodes in total, which was more than anyone else except for Rod Sailing. When you factor in that Sailing wrote 90 plus episodes out of 150 or so, then Beaumont's contribution to what's left seems even more substantial. Now, Beaumont was successful in more than just the Twilight Zone. He was a celebrated writer of stories and television, and who really knows what else he would have achieved had his life not tragically been cut short at the age of 38. He is a bit of an enigma. There are some facts about him out there, but nowhere near as much as, say, Rod Serling. Visitors to our site, the Twilight Zone Network, will hopefully have read my review recently of a new documentary film that shed some light on the life and death of Charles Beaumont, and it's called Charles Beaumont, The Short Life of Twilight Zone's Magic Man. I enjoyed it a great deal. It has a fantastic lineup of people who contribute to it. Names like Richard Matheson, Ray Bradbury, William Shatner, George Clayton Johnson, who also wrote several Twilight Zones as well, Mark Zickrey, a great lineup, but but it's all been brought together by the hard work of the director Jason V. Brock and the editor and also Jason's wife, Sonny Brock. Jason and Sonny were generous enough to spare me some time to talk about the documentary this week, but before I run that, I would just like to say that it's it's been my pleasure to interview several people over the past couple of years for various projects and it's always nice when you feel that someone is really being completely honest with you because a lot of the time you come across not dishonesty but rather a more guarded honesty where you feel that you're really only getting perhaps a slightly sanitized version of the truth if you like. And that's fine, that's, you know, everyone has the right to say as much or as little as they like, but occasionally I have been lucky enough to come across people who are just refreshingly honest, I think, and Jason and Sonny are right up there with the best of them. I genuinely got the feeling that I probably could have asked them anything and got a completely frank and honest answer, and I think when you hear the interview, you'll agree with that too. So I've gone on long enough and I will leave you now with the makers of Charles Beaumont, the short life of Twilight Zone's magic man, Jason and Sonny Brock. Guys, as a as a way of introduction before we talk about the documentary, I'd like to maybe touch on you guys for a moment because because you've done what I guess many of us wish we could do and you kind of left the rat race to, to lead more creative lives. Could you give us a bit of background about you two? No. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, go ahead. Sonny, you, you do that. You talk about that. So um, I'll start with myself. I worked at Microsoft uh, since I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And uh, at some point, um, I met Jason not too long ago, about, about eight years ago. Yeah. And I was uh, pretty sick of just doing the software thing all the time. Uh, he was working at Fujifilm at that time. Mm-hmm. And he got a promotion, and we moved to Los Angeles together. And um, I left Microsoft. He was working at Fuji. I worked for some startups, um, and I also worked for uh, Sonic Solutions, which was a spinoff of ILM. Yeah. 
And then Jason yeah. uh, was working at Fuji and he came to me one day and he said, I really want to do films. And since we're in LA, let's just start, let's just do it. And so we came up with a plan to start the company and, and we launched into it. And it's been, uh, it's been a long journey and, and very challenging, but very rewarding. So why, why Charles Beaumont? <laughs> well, that actually came about a little bit backward. Beaumont came about uh, by way of actually Forrest J. Ackerman. Hmm. And Ackerman was somebody we are working on his documentary right now. It's called The Ackermonster Chronicles. Okay. And he was a, the first agent of Charles Beaumont. And as we were doing the interviews with, with John Landis and Joe Dante and like uh, William F. Nolan and George Clayton Johnson and Mark Scott Zacree, they said, have you thought about doing a documentary on Charles Beaumont? Hmm. And I said... No, I'm interested in Beaumont. My first blush with Beaumont was in Zachary's excellent The Twilight Zone Companion, mm. where he talks at length about Beaumont and how he did all of these things, brought all these people together, you know, under the ages of Bradbury and other people. And his he was a really remarkable individual. And I said, well, I hadn't thought about that, but I am interested. So I started looking into it, and with Sonny, of course, and we found out there was another person working on a documentary about him. Oh. And we thought, well, that's it. We're not going to – I didn't want to step on anyone's toes, so to speak. And uh, I thought, well, that's it. And they said, no, nah, don't worry about that. There's plenty of fodder for more than one documentary about Beaumont. Hmm. And I said, okay. So we started digging into that, and it just came together a lot faster than Ackerman. Because Ackerman actually was still alive yeah. during this process, obviously. And, and so his story wasn't quite finished, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, you know, Ackerman became very ill at some point and we decided, well, it's probably in better taste and better sense to go ahead and finish the Beaumont movie because we can wrap it up mm -hmm. and and not push, you know, Ackerman right now and wait on that. So that's what we've done. So we're in the middle of, of editing Ackerman now. We should have it done pretty soon here. Yes, it'll be out. Uh, I, we'll have a finished cut of it, mm -hmm. I think, within a week. Mm -hmm. And that'll be a rough, of course. And then we'll have the finished documentary done i believe in october and but it won't be ready for dvd distribution at that point it will be by the end of the year okay probably december december 31 but we are planning on doing some screenings of the documentary down in la and in kansas uh university of kansas at lawrence and some other places and perhaps even up in canada mm -hmm. And uh, I'd like to do some in the UK, but we just haven't had an opportunity to get over yeah. there lately. It'll also be showing at the Buffalo International Film Festival. Yes, yeah, it will be showing at the Buffalo International Film Festival. And I have some other bigger, larger draw things that are planned, but I can't. They're not jailed completely, so I don't want to discuss that yet. Does it take long to put all these pieces together? Well, actually, not that long. I mean, when you consider, <clears throat> we've been we've been working steadfastly on three documentaries simultaneously okay okay mm -hmm. one was the charles beaumont film one was the acker monster chronicles and they kind of overlapped that's why we did those kind of back to bags kind of like back to the future and back to the future too you mm -hmm. know what i mean and um then the third film is totally unrelated but we've invested a huge amount of time and energy into it it's called image reflection shadow artists of the fantastic hmm. and we've interviewed Probably 25 of the some, some new upcoming artists, but also some of the greatest artists in the world. H.R. Yeah. Uh, Giger, you know, Ernst Fuchs, uh, a lot of people in Europe. We were in Europe for a month doing interviews. We have to go to Australia 
for about a week and do several more interviews. And it's all about fantastic imagery from the time of Bosch and Bruegel the Elder mm -hmm. to the present. And why does that imagery, imagery resonate with people in such a manner? And uh, that'll be a major film, which we hope to have out by the end of next year. Cool, cool. Yeah. We, we, started, uh, we started filming in 2005, and our first uh, interviewee was Ray Bradbury. Mm -hmm. And we interviewed him about Forrest Ack J. Ackerman and also about Beaumont, and then we went from there. Uh, it, but it's been, I think we, we've been doing interviews up until 2010, yeah. and then the editing process for the first movie took about, took about a year, really. If you look down the cast of people... In, in the movie it's absolutely fantastic the the names in there i mean i'd like to maybe just touch on some of these personalities that you actually got on board it's an interesting term <laughs> personality <laughs> well that's the thing because you know uh george clayton johnson he fascinates me in particular because you know he wrote kick the can and when i see him on screen he just seems to embody that you know he still seems to be a young man in an old man's body yes yes yes, yes. You know, we, uh, it's funny because when we were, when we were starting this and we met George Clayton Johnson and then shortly afterwards we met William F. Nolan and I kept thinking, you know, when I was a kid, I remember watching all the things that these guys wrote mm -hmm. and it was, they were all about aging, you know, yeah. and they were young men when they wrote these things and now we're meeting them and they're old men and it's very, <laughs> it's very interesting. <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah, well, J Johnson, yeah, his preoccupation has always been the elderly, the forgotten peoples of society, yeah. that type of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to see him now as a successful writer, you know, at, at a different point in his career, where he is, uh, yeah, physically he's older. I mean, he looks like, you know, father time. Yeah. And so <laughs> he's got this persona, and in a lot of ways he's doing quite well. And then in some other ways, it seems like he hasn't changed at all, which is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. his his pre preoccupations and his mindset are, are exactly where they were when he was in his 20s. He's a very cosmic person. He's cosmic. Say. Yeah, he's recursive. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, William F. Nolan, who is actually a good friend of ours. He only lives a few blocks from us. Mm. Um, you know, they wrote Logan's Run together, but Bill is like a 10-year-old in an 80-something-year-old man's body. Mm. I mean, literally. Runs around, lots of energy, always excited about things. Yes, lots of energy. <laughs> it's uh, What most people don't understand is they think that we uh, got accessibility to these people, these personalities, <laughs> by way of Nolan, which is not true. He was one of the last people we interviewed. He was. Okay. You know, and um, nobody introduced us to anybody. I just cold called or wrote yeah. Every single per one of these people. Really? And they, yeah. And they all were interested in discussing Beaumont. Wow. And that was pretty fascinating. And then Ackerman as an adjunct to that, you know, but that was uh, the first person that ever really made contact with us was John Landis because we'd written a bunch of letters to people trying to see if we could drum up some interest because we got the idea for making the documentaries at the, the San Diego Comic Con. Mm. There was a big signing with Bradbury, Ray Harryhausen, and Forrest J. Ackerman. And I thought, you know, to do a film, one of the best things to do, because I've always wanted to do film myself, was I thought it would be a documentary, which I'd worked on a few things like that as a teenager. Yeah. And I said, I think uh, I was trying to say who would, who would be a fascinating documentary 
person to do a documentary on. One was Bradbury. Of course, he's had several. Mm. Then Harry Hosen has had a couple. And so I said, you know, Ackerman really hasn't had that many. And it's still true. There are not very many good documentaries about Ackerman's life. And so uh, there are a couple that shall remain nameless. They're they're not that interesting. Mm. You know what I mean? They don't bring anything to the fore except he was a big fan. Okay, big deal. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have Ackerman talking about all kinds of things in his life. You know, his collecting, you know, how he got involved with this, the death of his brother in World War II. You know, how he... (laughs) got into Esperanto and nudism and all these kinds of weird things that you never hear about. And uh, probably we did the longest interview ever done with Ackerman, which was eight and a half hours. And then we did another pickup interview of five hours. So we have 13 hours of footage of just him talking about his whole life. But just like on Beaumont, you know, with Beaumont, we wanted to show the full human, not just a fluff piece about his Twilight Zone episodes or not just delving into his writing, but really to show him as a person and to see all the sides of his personality. Yeah. That's where we engendered controversy. Certainly. Well, let's let's go into this. This seems like a good time to talk about that. So, <laughs> go ahead. So what happened, the controversy, the way that, or controversy, or however you guys say it, is uh, the way that happened was completely innocuous, all right? Mm-hmm. We didn't realize... At first, as I said, we did not know someone else was doing a documentary. And then when we said we don't want to compete, we don't want to, you know, get on somebody, you know, disrupt somebody's thing. And everybody kept saying, no, you should do it. There's plenty. You'll have two different angles that you'll be attacking it from. And I and which I think is legitimate. I mean, you can have a documentary about more than one thing. Mm. You know, I mean, one subject from multiple perspectives, in other words. Yeah. And so I said, OK, so we forged ahead. We got to know the other documentarian. And uh, he is good friends with Christopher Beaumont, who is Charles Beaumont's son. Yeah, and that, just for context, he was actually best friends with the youngest Beaumont son, Greg, who passed away of cancer. Yeah, and as this other documentarian was. Yeah, and so he wanted to pay back his friend by doing the documentary on his father. So we didn't didn't understand that whole family connection there, Mm -hmm. and that was going on we also didn't understand at the time that we launched into this that there was a long-standing family feud between william f nolan and the beaumont children we didn't understand we didn't know that so we stepped into a situation where we had to pick a side and unfortunately we picked the side of reason (laughs) (laughs) well what happened to elaborate on that to elaborate on that what happened was when we did we interviewed Chris Beaumont first mm. and he was a great gentleman. You know, he was, he was, he had a great interview, I think. Yeah. And, uh, he signed the release, you know, to let us use the footage and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, we informed him, we were thinking about doing a documentary on his father, but we were definitely going to do one on Ackerman. Yeah. And so he talked at length about Ackerman cause he knew him and his dad and, you know, and then in that context, then he, we kind of fell out of contact for a while. And this other documentarian who was his friend was working with him on their thing and getting it going. And he, but he kept in touch with me, that guy mm. and uh, which was fine. And so I kept him abreast of what we were doing. And he told me what he was doing and he was working with Peter coyote and doing a voiceover. And we've actually seen a cut of his film. It's called where no man walks. Okay. And, uh, it's based on the title comes from a Charles Beaumont novel that was never printed. Mm. 
and uh, it was not completed during before he passed away. And so we thought everything was, you know, mostly uh, copacetic here, and everybody was good. Well, apparently not, because Chris then had major issues with the fact that we were doing this film, and this was an, an unauthorized biography, right. which to me is the only way to do it. I mean, Beaumont is a public figure. We don't slander him at all. Mm -hmm. You know, we would never do that. There's nothing bad in there. It's just, I think that he wanted a greater degree of control over his father's legacy, but to be honest, there's nothing at all that he should be worried about or neg feel negative about. I think he should feel good about it. To this day, I don't think he's seen the film. Although we've uh, sent him a copy of it, he just refuses to look at it. And the what's good and bad, though, is the other documentarian ran into some legal issues with footage he wanted to use related to the Twilight Zone. Uh -huh. So his documentary, it doesn't look like, will ever come out. Oh. So if we hadn't done this one, there would be nothing. That's right. And so, uh, you know, I feel... And plus, there's another... <laughs> Then that Chris is also working with a major Hollywood producer that I shall not name, mm. who uh, really got all up into my case about this whole thing, and it's <laughs> now it's kind of blown over, thankfully, because I have no hard feelings toward Chris or anybody at all, and neither does Sonny. Yeah, and their thing with Nolan is uh, unrelated to us. We care about Bill, but when we met Chris, but this producer guy, he got real mad and. You know, said he was going to, you know, kill me and all this kind of stuff. And that's fine. Lots, lots of people have wanted to kill me. And so, but uh, I don't have any ill will toward him either. And hopefully he feels the same. And he realizes that we did do this out of a labor of love, not to hurt anybody or anything like that. And that we were not telling a story. We did start out doing Ackerman. Mm. We got sidetracked by Beaumont because they thought we were telling a lie, which is not true, of course. And now we're back to Ackerman. It's just Beaumont came together a lot faster. Sure, sure. And that is part of this sort of tale, although Roger Corman figures in slightly uh, with the film because we had to get some footage from Corman for The Intruder, mm. and uh, that cost a lot of money. Let's just say <laughs> The Intruder is now profitable. Yeah, The, intruder, the intruder is now profitable. <laughs> and if people haven't seen The Intruder, it is a wonderful film. Charles Beaumont plays the school principal he wrote the screenplay um, based on his novel. William F. Nolan and George Clayton Johnson are in the movie. It's it's an William Shatner, who's one of his earliest roles. Yeah. Awesome movie. Everyone should see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, Frank M. Robinson, who wrote The Glass Inferno, is in it. Uh, Playing a Klansman. Plays a Klansman. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of interesting. Who were you most surprised that you got into the documentary? Because I'm thinking Shatner. <laughs> Shatner was pretty surprising. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Shatner was pretty surprising. Harlan Ellison was kind of interesting. Boy, Harlan. Harlan was interesting because he talked about a personality. I mean, <laughs> Harlan, he's a real intense guy. And I've been told I'm an intense guy. So it was like Clash of the Titans there. Really? And uh, we were, you know, going back and forth on things on the phone. And he, he made me, like, jump through several hoops to get in there. But it was worth doing because... He was very interesting and informative when it comes to Beaumont and his relationship early in Chicago. Because if you'll notice in the film, anyone who knew Beaumont when he was in Chicago called him Charlie. That'd be Frank Robinson, Harlan, um, Shatner called him Charlie, I think, because Robinson mm -hmm. called him that on set of The Intruder. Yeah. Uh, but everybody else called him Chuck. Okay, yeah. That's his good friends down in L.A. called him that. And that's what he preferred to be called. He actually did write an article called Don't Call Me Charlie. Um, 
which was never printed, where he talks about the genesis of his name, because that's not even his real name, as you know. His real name is Charles McNutt, mm-hmm. and you know, so he had a lot of name issues throughout his life. Which, uh, and then Charles, well, it was Charles Nutt, then McNutt, and then Beaumont. But you know, so he, I think Beaumont, in a way, had a lot of self-identity yeah. conflict. I think that he wanted to project something more than he actually was in his mind. Although I think, in retrospect, those things that drove him forced him into being the type of person that he always thought he was, mm-hmm. you know, he, he was very driven and his choices and actions actually created that persona. And it's not just a facade. It actually is there underneath that whole surface all the way to the core yeah, yeah. of his persona. Uh-huh. And he, uh, and he carried everyone along with him. He did. He certainly did. I mean, without him, William F. Nolan would not have a writing career uh-huh. uh, without him. I think that uh, probably George Clayton Johnson would not have as an illustrious a writing career because although he was writing and he did do things, you know, like he wrote Ocean's Eleven, mm. you know, with that partner of his that he was working with, George really had not gotten into television. You know, Chuck was the first one, along with Rich Matheson, to get into that. Yeah. And, um, you know, by way of, of, of Serling, you know, whom I think is... Uh, Definitely underrated in this respect. I mean, Serling did foster a lot of people, you know, and uh, he was, a, I think, a caring, brilliant individual who saw talent and tried to utilize it to the best of their ability and his ability. Mm. Well, you know, I was going to come to that because there is that part in the documentary where you kind of take a slight detour and talk about the, the situation with Serling and Ray Bradbury and Serling being accused of plagiarism. And then Harlan mm-hmm. Ellison comes along and says, you know, Sailing wasn't fit to carry Charles Beaumont's pencil case. I mean, you you do present it in a very balanced way, but, you know, Sailing's fans kind of do hold him up on a pedestal there, including me, I guess. I mean, have you experienced any negativity towards yourselves for bringing that up? No, I think what it is, is most people don't really understand <clears throat> there was this controversy behind the scenes, because there was, and it's only hardened on Bradbury's end, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. Right. Um, I think it started, you know, very equitable. And, and Bradbury actually has never talked about that publicly. Mm. Okay. So that him talking about that, I did bring that up uh, out of naivety. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and he went ahead and talked about it, uh, which in retrospect is kind of surprising because normally he just, you know, says, uh, I don't want to go into that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he felt the urge or the impulse to set his part of the record straight. Now, I really love Ray. I think he's a great guy. We see him a lot, but I think he's wrong. Mm. I don't think I don't think Serling was out to get him by any means. Yeah. I think that Serling was up against some realistic, probably budgetary constraints, and he went with the script he went with. Now, did he make an agreement not to cut his stuff? I probably he did. And then probably in retrospect, he realized he was not going to be able to do that. And that's where it started the whole ball going down the hill because, you know, he also felt that Serling had unintentionally plagiarized some of his things. And then Beaumont wrote this long letter, you know, saying other people feel this way. They're griping and complaining. And I I have a friend of mine who I am no longer friends with Mm -hmm. who went to great lengths to explain to me that Mr. Garrity and the Graves which is a script by some other individual that was uh, was based on a Philip Jose Farmer work. Yeah. And that there's a lot of controversy vis-a-vis Philip Jose Farmer's fans and stuff where they claim that, you know, it was Serling kind of 
authorizing this plagiarism of, of Farmer. Right. And I told my friend, I said, I doubt Serling realized that that was closely based on a Farmer work, or perhaps it was unintentional on the part of the guy who wrote it. I can't remember. He's a, I think he's a Greek guy who never did any other television. But uh, Serling was in need, dire need of content. Mm-hmm. You know, so he was very driven by content, 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 because he, he was under the gun, as you know. You've interviewed Mark Sacree. Mm-hmm. He had this insane schedule. You know, he had a maintain with and they used to do more television shows then than they do now Mm. nolan nolan interviewed uh, serling at his home and asked him about that and serling said it's so bad that if i drop my pencil i'm two weeks behind yeah so he was totally under the gun you know and it's probably i think what contributed to his early death yeah you know is this intense pressure he was under i mean he was a driven individual as it was but that intense pressure i think really didn't help matters and do i believe that you know, Serling unintentionally ripped off Philip Jose Farmer? No, I don't. And John Tomerlin, in the documentary, he knew Serling well, and he says Rod would never have done that. I mean, he why would Rod need to do that? I mean, if you look at his career pre-Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. it was already very illustrious. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he was... Uh, he is still the winningest, you know, Emmys in history as far as, you know, number of actual right. awards for writing. And so I think that... You have to put it in the perspective. Now, is Bradbury compelling? Yeah, he's still alive, and he can present his case. Mm-hmm. That's why I felt we needed to go into it a little bit in the documentary. Yeah. I said, Rod is dead. He cannot defend himself. Yeah. So we have to get in there and make a defense for him, although I think it's rather unnecessary. Now, Harlan's comment about not being fit to carry his pencil case and that he's a rara avis, mm-hmm. I agree that he's rara avis, but so is Serling. And I have to say, and this will be probably a somewhat controversial statement. Good, okay. When you compare Bradbury and Serling side by side, to me, in my mind, it is obvious who won that battle, and that is Serling. Because Serling is a pop culture phenomenon, Mm -hmm. okay? Not just The Twilight Zone, not just Night Gallery, not just Requiem for a Heavyweight and the Comedian and all those Emmys. Yeah. He is someone everyone knows, and it, whether it's because he was on his show as the host, or he has that inimitable kind of voice, you know, that delivery, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. I don't know what it is, but he has outstripped Bradbury, I think, in popular culture influence mm-hmm. at this point. I do believe at one point it was not the case. I believe early on, Bradbury definitely was the king of the manor. Yeah. I think after that... It, it shifted, and that is largely due to the medium of television, which was nascent then, and Serling was the titan uh-huh. of television, along with Chayefsky and Reginald Rose and you know Horton Foote and a few others. He was early TV, and he shaped what drama was on the small screen. Mm-hmm. And that didn't translate well to his large screen efforts, as we all know. I mean, he had a very spotty record on film, yeah. but it didn't matter. Because his reach is so incredibly long now that it just everybody knows who Rod Serling is. If you say the Twilight Zone or Rod Serling, they know immediately who that is. Mm-hmm. You say Bradbury, they go, oh, yeah, I think I had to read him in school, or uh-huh. right. or you say the Martian Chronicles, or you know, and they go, yeah, I think I, I had to read that. I had to read Fahrenheit four five one. That's a totally different thing. Does Serling have a body of work like a book that will outlive him? Not really, no, because his he was a dramatist for television, as he points out. But The Twilight Zone is such a cultural milestone. It's so important 
I mean, to me, it is the best television series ever produced anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Period. And I don't think you can really mess with that too much as a legacy. I mean, it is Rod Serling. Are you are you not tempted to visit him as a subject? Yeah, he's he's had a few, he's had a couple of documentaries done. Yeah. What were you gonna say, dear? I just uh, he he's had a couple of documentaries. I'd love to do that. You know, there's a guy who's now going to be doing I can't remember his name right off a, a bio picture. Yeah. Of, yes. Of Rod Serling, yeah, and they're going to dramatize his life, and Beaumont is a character in it. So he wrote me and said, "Can I get a copy of this film?" Hmm. And uh, I said, "Sure." So we sent it to him, and he used it as some research material about that whole underpinnings. And if you have, if there are two versions of the film. I might, I must say, one is a ninety-minute cut, and all of that Serling bribery stuff is gone. Right. In the director's cut, the long version, that's all in there because it's quite long. I mean, there is so much stuff. We could have put in. I mean, there was a three-hour cut that was very interesting. Yeah. Um, but it's just. It's just too long. It's People just too long. I mean, there. lots of interesting things there. But uh, I think that yeah, I would love to visit Serling in one way. I did actually write an early an early screenplay myself because I envisioned a trilogy of films with Bradbury actually as the thing holding them together mm -hmm. and one was Serling one it was about the early television in the twilight zone that was one aspect of it and it was going to be it was going to be called between light and shadow right and it was mostly about Serling with Bradbury as kind of a, a backdrop to that and then the other films I was going to do one was about EC comics because Bradbury also was a figure in the EC comics controversy of the 50s mm. Then the Hollywood Ten was another aspect of that, so maybe someday I'll revisit that because I'd love to do all those things. I think that uh, the whole EC Comics and the and the brouhaha that developed here in the United States, especially, is a, a kind of analogous to the video nasties things that that was happening and still going on in the UK. Yeah, you know, vis-a-vis -vis certain films and um, very interesting and similar parallels there, actually. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're not too bad these days in, in terms of uh, censorship and so on, but, um, yeah, still maybe a, a step behind the U.S. Well, even the U.S. has gotten more, you know, they won't tackle subjects that are as daring these days, sadly. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I think that part of it is when you start talking about irrespective of your politics, whenever you have one individual who is too powerful, in my opinion, such as a Rupert Murdoch, mm. who controls too much of the means of distribution, yeah. then you obviously get bias. You know what I mean? Because you're not having competing viewpoints to come to the fore. You're just having one person or one entity's, you know, slant on everything. And that can't be good, you know, no, for no. the world at large and the press specifically. And that's the whole reason uh, Sterling <laughs> took off and did Twilight Zone. That's exactly he right. Because wanted to be free to, to speak his mind, even if he had to, you know, couch it in terms of science fiction or horror. Uh -huh. Yeah, and science fiction, I think, and horror to a large degree, has also been plundered by the likes of, uh, say, Stephen King. I don't know King. I've read King, of course, like everybody else. But to me, first of all, the guy's in dire need of a good editor. I mean, he needs somebody <laughs> to come in there and just whack the crap out of his, you know, his story. Dude, there may be a story in here, but let's get rid of 800 pages of this, you know, 1,200 <laughs> Because even a 400-page novel, I think, is way too long. Yeah. You know, uh, when you start thinking and parsing out the greatest novels ever written, and I'm not talking about, like, 
Jane Austen and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about like the modern novels, Hemingway's things, or perhaps even Fitzgerald, certainly, and also Faulkner, but also William Golding, you know, Lord of the Flies and I Am Legend by Richard Matheson, Logan's Run by George and Bill. Mm -hmm. Those books are very short and they're short and their concision is what makes them have drive and what gives them resonance because you can actually remember it. You know, instead of just pages and pages of slogging a logoria where somebody's just going on and on and on and on and on and on and on ad nauseum, mm-hmm. because this is what the market has become. The market is only like that because I'm sorry, you know, to say this partially because of works by King, Dean Koontz, <clears throat> Clive Barker. I I hasten to add because Clive Barker's work, although I like it, was much more effective early on. Right, I would agree with that. Of course, I mean, and he he was better. He had more control. You know, he had somebody there. He was hungrier too, mm-hmm. and he had somebody there saying, "Clive, I don't think this will work here. I think you need to pare this down." And I mean, and I think that that's true of King as well. When you look at his early works, I mean, by the time he gets to the Stand, which I think is just dreadful, okay, <laughs> it's not. He's he's totally lost control. I mean, he was starting to lose control with The Shining, as oh, yeah. Sonny points out. Yeah, I said, okay, about 10 pages in, I get it. It's snowing and they're driving. I get it. Let's go. <laughs> Which is why, this is why I think that the movie, The Stand, excuse me, whoops, Freudian slip, uh, which is why I think The Shining is a much better film than a book. Right. Uh, I think that The Dead Zone is a good book and an even better movie, you know? So, but what are you going to do? I mean, that's the way the market is gone. I think now that the markets are starting to shrink again, we might have a return to greater control. Yeah. You know, and greater, you know, a little more taming of the beast, so to speak. They're too big, these guys. They just need to go away and quit writing for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's just too much. We need more Ramsey Campbells and, and, and less, you know, King and Koontz. And, uh, you know, Koontz is another one. You know, William F. Nolan and I had, go round and round because he loves Dean Koontz's work. And I'm like, yeah, well, he's a good writer, but come on. Uh-huh. He just, he's just ad nauseum, you know, and you're like, okay, I get it. Yeah. But that's just my opinion. That's where I think Serling is kind of like that too. His work didn't work in longer form. When they stretched the Twilight Zone to an hour, it didn't quite work, mm. you know. That and, formula worked well for half an hour. Yeah, it's perfect. It's a short story kind of idea. They struggled when they tried to change it. Yes, and you know that's true for Maths and Beaumont. Their stories worked better in the half-hour format. Yeah, yeah. Well, even even that pilot episode, I can't remember what's the name of that one. The uh, it was on. I think it's called Where Is It Everybody. No, no, the the one that was on the the Zillu Playhouse. Um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, well, yes. The, I mean that you know that could have used a, a little cutting down. I thought that was you know forty-five, fifty minutes long, and I, I I absolutely agree. You know, it worked much better when they cut it down. I think Mark Zakri makes a strong argument for that in the book, too, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. when he's analyzing episode by episode. Now, by the time Night Gallery comes along, we have a change in format of the television, and Laird, Jack Laird, who was a fairly well-respected writer for television also, he worked on Marcus Welby and some other things, mm-hmm. he decided that they needed to inject levity into the proceedings, the horror kind of stuff, and I think that sometimes that worked, and then I think sometimes it was terrible. You know, but uh, they were frequently at loggerheads because Laird and Serling did not get along because Serling partially had himself to blame. He said it was too much of a grueling 
scenario to play the host and do the writing and the producing and all that like he did on Twilight Zone. Mm. So he just wanted to be more of a host and contribute occasional writing duties. Well, what he didn't realize is that Laird was, I feel, very jealous of Serling's accomplishments and also did not particularly like Serling's writing for whatever reason. Yeah. And so he wielded his position as the producer, you know, one of the writers with an iron fist. And he basically felt Serling should be just relegated to being a host mm -hmm. with an occasional thing in there to acquiesce to the studio producing the series, The Night Gallery. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that that's where the series suffered is from Laird got a little too much control and they did need to give Serling back some. And I think he regretted that, yeah. you know, toward the end of his run on that. You know, you mentioned earlier that um, I, you guys shot about 50 hours of footage, is that right? Yeah. Anything anything that sticks out that you kind of thought, man, I wish we could put this in, but it's, it just doesn't fit. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in there that sticks out like that. There's a lot of things that were discussed mm -hmm. by Richard Matheson that didn't make it. And some of it will be in the Ackerman documentary because, you know, Matheson knew both of them. And um, Matheson is an actor, as you probably know, but, you know, he was like he was in... Uh, somewhere in time, he had a bit role, and but he's also done some other more serious acting, mm -hmm. and he does these imitations of several people. One of them is Forey Ackerman, which is kind of funny, <laughs> and, and Rod uh, Serling, <laughs> and Rod Serling, yeah, he does that too. And so. so some of that was pretty interesting. There were other things about how s the whole controversy around Beaumont and his did he philander or not. Mm. Uh, some of that didn't make it in because. It wasn't prurient, but it wasn't um, germane. We ex we went into that area, and I think we handled that. I'm glad you said the word balanced because I do think it was a well-balanced thing because we knew we could not, not address the fact that he did philander. Mm. But why did he do it? And that's where Roger Anker, who's doing the biography, was very good as a counterpoint because he's saying that Beaumont really didn't understand why yeah. he did these things. And I think it was probably just a deep-seated yeah. insecurity. He was still a young man. Yeah. He was having all this stuff right. fall at his feet because of his talent and his drive. And I don't think he felt good about that, but he also was a little bit weak. And maybe as an older man, he would have grown out of that. Sadly, he you know didn't live to be an older man. Mm -hmm. There are also lots and lots of stor funny stories and interesting things that these guys did as a group, especially John Tomerlin and Nolan and, and Beaumont, you know, they went all over the world and did all these racing things and did crazy stuff. And there's tons of stories like that, that we just couldn't fit in. We had to pick and choose and, and cut it down. Yeah. So there was a lot of stuff like that there. We also um, have access to some reel to reel recordings that they had done together. And they're very long recordings, but they're very funny where they would just do they would just do these skits that they would make up and lampoon science fiction conventions and do all sorts of imitations. And so we may end up using some of that material in some other projects, but we just couldn't fit it all in. You know, when you mention about all the things that they they do all over the world and stuff, I think my favorite moment of the documentary or one of them is when uh, John Tomlin just sort of gets lost in that moment and you can just kind of see him getting swept up in it again. And, uh, you know, Wilma just puts her hand, uh, hand on his arm. You know, such a sweet moment. It is. You know, I had an, I had an experienced editor mm -hmm. <laughs> tell me that I should remove that because it wasn't necessary and it just lingered too long. And I thought, 
no, I really feel that that needs to be in there. And I left it. And when we had the premiere and, and John uh, was there and he saw it for the first time, I could see that he was choking up watching it. So it was good. Yeah. Well, I mean, how, how about you guys? Um, I know this is a very broad question, but, you know, if you could choose maybe one thing, whether it be an interview or a moment or, or even, you know, a screening that you've done since that you hold up as particularly special or close to your own heart, you know, what would that be, do you think? Oh, I think it would definitely be when we premiered the movie at the Egyptian. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just, it was a culmination of everything that we had, you know, worked so hard for just to be taken seriously, to have it in Hollywood, to have all the people that live there that were in the movie to show up and come out and support it. I mean, it was just, it was amazing. It felt wonderful. And to have Mark Scott Zacree up there, yeah. um, you know, doing the Q&A with us afterwards. I mean, it was it was wonderful. Yeah, and plus we uh, had a big turnout. You know, we had about 400 people there. Mm-hmm. It actually went very well. And we're planning something like that for Ackerman because, so, like I said, some of the same people are in it. But we also have some other people that were not in this one, such as Ray Harryhausen and Landis and Dante. Dan O'Bannon is going to be in this one um, because he got to be a good friend of ours. Yeah. Uh, him and his wife Diane. Right. We're sorry. We miss Dan. We're sorry that he's left us. Yeah. Yeah. Big horror fan. So Return of the Living Dead. <laughs> that's a big one for me. <laughs> yeah, Return of the Living Dead. You know, that's a that's a good book. I just I just got the book which just came out. You know, the complete history of Return of the Living Dead. I think it's called. Okay. And uh, that's uh, that's a really nice volume. And have you seen the the new release of Dark Star? I have not. No. The thing with uh, Dark Star, what I was going to tell you is uh, the interview with Dan on the extras is one from that I did with him. Okay. And so he needed footage of Dan, who had already passed away by the Daniel Griffith. That's the name of the fellow that did it. Mm-hmm. It's on the Hyperdrive edition of Dark Star. Um, it's called Let There Be Light. It's an extra. It's a feature-length documentary he did, which is really good. And uh, that interview with Dan is is really cool mm-hmm. because he talks about. You know, all this stuff, we just got into a, kind of a wide-ranging, broad discussion, and I started hitting highlights of different films he'd worked on, like Dark Star and, you know, Return of the Living Dead, and uh, he wound up using that footage, and I think people would really like that who love Dan's work, you know, mm-hmm. so if you love it, you should check it out. Okay, will do, will do. Sonny, I, I read an article that you wrote where you said that this isn't about making money for you guys, it's about telling stories that need to be told, and... I mean, knowing now what it takes to put a film together and how much you you spend and how much you get back and that kind of thing, is this a sustainable way of life for you guys now? We hope that it will become so. I mean, it is because we don't just do one thing. I think that the way we've structured our business is, is smart. We came up with a plan where we have more than one thing going on at a time. Mm-hmm. The films is just one aspect. We have books. We have consulting business. We have music, we have multiple things going on. So because of that, we're able to sustain the business. Um, The films themselves, we invested a lot of money in doing the interviews and the equipment and the editing time, of course, you can't discount. Mm -hmm. But I think eventually having all these products, we will will recoup uh, our investments just in the films. I I do believe that. So where, where where can people go and buy the movie, check out what else you've got going on? So uh, we have a website. Mm-hmm. It's http www.jsunny.com. And if you go there, there's a link to our store where you can buy the movie or the books or see what the latest news is. We also have a newsletter you can sign up for on the site. 
There are links to our Facebook and Twitter and Google accounts. So if you want to hook up with us on social media, you can do that. And if you sign up for the newsletter, you'll get all of the announcements of all of our products and our signings and anywhere that we're going to be. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, um, I'd like to say just thanks again and best of luck with everything you got going on. Yeah, you too. And uh, appreciate the interview. You had some good questions. All right. Take care, Tom. Well, there you go. My thanks again to Jason and Sonny for taking some time to talk to me. And um, next time on the Twilight Zone podcast, we are going to be discussing the monsters are due on Maple Street. Now, like I said a couple of weeks ago, my schedule is a bit crazy right now. So the episodes aren't coming as regular as I would like. But bear with me. You know, we'll get through this. So thanks again, Jason and Sonny. I do hope anyone listening gets a chance to check out the documentary. I really enjoyed it and I, I think you will too. So I'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.